Well, this morning we are continuing our Practicing the Way of Jesus series, and we have been looking at the practice of God's presence, which is simply this, to affix our minds, to focus our minds on Jesus, to to create space within our lives that we are intentional about focusing on who Jesus is and his presence here with us. And our conviction is that as we do this, as we make this a practice in our life, it's something we do over and over and over again, it will become a habit. And it will become something that's more natural within our lives, which will make us more and more aware of God's presence in our world, in our lives, all around us. And so throughout this series, we've been looking at awareness and silence and solitude and thanksgiving and community and all these different ways where we are invited to practice the presence of God. This morning, we are going to be talking about something that the church has been doing literally for thousands and thousands of years. It's a practice that Jesus has given to us that we would experience his presence here and now. It goes by lots of different names. Some churches call it the Eucharist. Some call it Mass. Some call it um, the Thanksgiving meal. There are all sorts of different names. We often call it communion. And so we are going to be talking about communion this morning. My invitation for you is that we are going to take communion together as a community. And so typically, if you've joined us, that's something that's at the centerpiece of, uh, it's, it's at the core of everything that we do every week here at Forest View Church. Uh, but usually when we do it, we have a little bit of a bumper video to give you 30 seconds to go to your kitchen, to get some bread, to get some wine or juice, to bring that back and to be ready to share it as a community. And so I want to invite you right now If if you're watching this alone, run quick, go and get some, bring it back. Uh, Or or one of you run to the kitchen and go and get something, bring it back. Because we're going to be doing it as part of our sermon together uh, as we take uh, part in communion this morning. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 20. This is what it says. This is Jesus. This is before he is going to be betrayed. He is going to celebrate Passover with his disciples. Here's what it says. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, a few things that I want to just draw your attention to that stuck out to me in a profound way on this particular verse. I I am intrigued. I love that, that Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. So Jesus, he's taken his disciples. This, the Passover is something they celebrate every year. All good Jewish people would celebrate it. And it was a meal of celebration and remembrance about God's liberating work in Israel's history. As he led them out of Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt. He leads them out of captivity and delivers them into the freedom of the promised land. And I love that Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this with you before I suffer. Now he is pointing to the fact that he is going to be facing the cross. His disciples don't fully understand and grasp what Jesus is talking about. But, but this sentence is, is this beautiful combination of both this, this reality that suffering is going to take place. And yet you see Jesus here, he is experiencing this joy 
and delight and excitement, eagerly desiring to eat this meal. And it is not simply the meal that he's excited about. He's excited about eating it with them, with his disciples. So often when I read through the Gospels, I I can often picture Jesus as just kind of being annoyed and fed up with his disciples. I mean, they constantly don't get it. They're constantly bickering with one another. He's having to constantly explain himself. I can't help but often feel, think, uh, equating it to, you know, that time where you go, maybe you visit some cousins who are older than you, and that one cousin is like delegated or designated to have to hang out with you. It's like, okay, would you please be nice to this person for a little while? Make them feel at home. Or maybe you went and you were, went away to university or college and, and you had that person who was supposed to show you around campus and be nice to you and you realize it's just kind of a job that they have to do. They don't really care about you. They don't really like you. It's just something they are required to do. And yet I love this verse because it draws to our attention that Jesus loves his disciples. And not just simply in like the unconditional love he tolerates, he puts up with them, he, he, he dies on the cross for them, but, but in, a, in a, like he was excited to eat this meal with them, to spend time with his followers. There's a part of me that as I read this and I'm reminded of God's presence in our life that is something that God is excited to share with us that God loves to be with us and loves for us to be with him. And so the practice of the presence of God should never be simply a chore or a labor, but rather it is something that can flow out of joy. It can be something that's eagerly desired. Go to the next verse. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Continue on. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next slide. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so Jesus takes this Passover meal, this traditional meal that the Jewish people would celebrate every single year, that his disciples had celebrated every day of their lives, and he infuses it with this whole new meaning and understanding about what God's liberating power was doing in their world, that this was not simply some past event where God had led his people out of slavery, but that Jesus himself was going to suffer and that he was giving over, handing over his body and pouring out his blood that that all of Israel and ultimately all of humanity would be able to experience the liberation and freedom from sin. And his invitation to them is to do this in remembrance of him. And so it isn't simply a one-off event, but rather is something that actually the Christian church begins to rally around. It becomes the centerpiece of their gathered time, of their life as a community. Uh, a couple years later, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in a city called Corinth. And this is a church of diversity, of rich and poor Jew and Gentile. And he is speaking to this community. And one of the reasons he begins to address them is because they are doing communion 
all wrong. They are taking part in this ritual, this practice that they are doing over and over and over again. But instead of being this thing that brings everyone together, it's actually something that is, that is, uh, it is uh, highlighting their differences. And so the rich and the poor, they are experiencing this and experiencing this meal in very different ways and it's causing division. And so Paul writes and addresses them and says, basically, if this is not bringing unity, you are doing it wrong. And then he draws their attention back to it. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so Paul's first step is not to correct them. Hey, do this, do this, do this. In fact, his first invitation is to say, Let's look back to what this is really all about. This is about remembering. Jesus says, this is about remembering. Paul says, this is about remembering. This is something that you do in remembrance of me. Go to the next slide. Now, this phrase, do this in remembrance of me, is an invitation for all Christians to to center our lives and our worship around the work that God has done through Jesus Christ's sacrificial death. And we are invited to do this in remembrance of him. Now, the word remembrance is a Greek word. It's used here by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and it's used by the Apostle Paul's anamenonis. And when they're using this word, it isn't simply just a remembering in terms of like a mental bringing to mind. It is an embodying. It is a, an experience of making Christ present. Go to the next slide. It is to make Christ present. And Christians throughout the last number, well, basically for the last 2,000 years, have all believed that in some significant way, Christ is present when the church gathers together and participates in communion. That, that Christ is somehow present in a significant, meaningful way. That his presence is there. And for Christians, so many of us, we have, there is different ways that we try to explain this presence. And some of them are good explanations and some of them are bad explanations. But the reality is that all Christians live with this deep conviction and this understanding that Christ is present when we share communion together. As we we come together and we take part in remembering the work, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has done for us. Robert Weber in his book, Ancient Future Worship, puts it this way. He is right there at broken bread and poured out wine. When we gather together, when we get the bread and the wine, and as we share it together, Christ is present. Now, this is a mystery. It's something that we don't, we can't explain. Uh, one of our values here at Forest View is that we embrace mystery. And I would argue that many of the divisions that have happened in, throughout church history are actually rooted in trying to explain this powerful mystery. And when we say mystery, we don't simply mean, oh, well, we can't figure it out, just ignore it. But rather, we instead embrace the fact that this is a gift, a gracious gift from God. It's not something that we can nail down. 
It's not something that we can just explain away or control or manipulate, but rather that God blessing us, graciously giving his presence to us as we gather around the bread and the wine and as we remember what Christ has done, that he is present to us in a significant way. That this is the mystery that our life orients around. Jesus' call to us, go to the next slide, is to remember him. And Jesus has told us the way that we are to remember him. That it is a practice for us as a community to gather together around a table, to break bread, to pour out wine, to eat and drink, to consume and be reminded of what Christ has done. It is visceral. It is something that impacts all of the senses. Because to remember, as Jesus puts it, is not simply a cognitive thing that happens up in our head, but it is rather something that happens as we gather together as a church and we experience the goodness of God's creation of smell and taste and bread and wine, and we enjoy it together in unity. Jesus has told us the way to remember him. Now, remembering in our culture is an interesting thing. It actually, since the invention of, well, I imagine the printing press, but even more so in recent years, how many of us, this is like a question for those who are like 30 and older, how many of us, how many phone numbers can you actually remember? Just think through, what are some of the phone numbers that you actually know off by heart? You don't need to go into your contact list in your phone that you have actually remembered. Now, I want you to do another experiment. How many of those are numbers that are still in service? Maybe it was the home that you grew up in. Maybe it was your best friend growing up. Uh, maybe it was a cell phone for your parent and you are now much older and they don't have a cell phone or they have a cell phone now, they don't have a landline. Uh, maybe it is uh, a jingle for a pizza place. H how many phone numbers do you have to remember? For most of us, we don't have to think very much about remembering things anymore. We have devices, we have notebooks, we have all sorts of different things that we can use to do that for us. Memory is an interesting thing. Back in the 80s, there was this belief that uh, within, and pretty predominant view within modern psychology back in the 80s, was that essentially the brain worked almost like a camera. Uh, your memory works like a camera, and so you would capture these different experiences, and it would just be locked in there. And, and what would happen is, is that over time, some of those different files, those different photographs might get moved around, and you wouldn't know where they were, and so you would forget things. But ultimately, if you just were able to go and search the recesses of your mind, you could ultimately find those things again. And so you saw there was a lot of, of use of hypnosis and different forms of, of therapy that would be used to kind of go and draw up these past experiences and this idea that you could actually see them and experiencing, experience them again. And it's why in like the late 80s, early 90s, there was all of these psychological thrillers that involved hypnosis. Well, later on, as, as we've learned more and more about the human brain and how it works, we've learned that, that memory is actually a lot more complicated and a lot more fluid than just simply the idea of a camera taking a picture. 
In fact, in a better image of, of a memory, instead of it being more like a photograph, is actually more like a canvas that you paint on and repaint every time that memory comes to mind. Memories fade, memories mutate, mutate uh, memories dissolve. There are all these different things that maybe you remember a certain way, and as time goes on, you'll begin to remember them in different ways. It's why we have a term we call selective memory. Now, many of you probably have experienced selective memory. It might be something that you experience as you go out shopping for groceries and you have a selective memory. It's like, I knew I was supposed to get all these vegetables when I left the house, but somehow when I got to the grocery store, I remembered we need cookies, we need uh, whatever else, chocolate, chips, popcorn, all those different things. It's a selective memory. Maybe for you, it's actually, we, we see selective memory in, in, um, in businesses or in different organizations. Uh, there are those who you, you are in the midst of it, uh, and people will look back on the past, and they will say, oh, wow, remember when we were just a small company, and there was this energy and excitement as we were starting up, and it was just, that was the best time. Now, if you were actually to transport back to when you were just starting up, it was stressful and so much work, and your thought process was, man, I wish we could just be bigger. I wish we had more employees. I wish we had more resources. This happens in businesses and organizations. It happens in churches. I remember talking to a pastor and he was, he was lamenting with some people within his community who uh, they had originally been a church plant. They had originally started meeting in a school gym. And so every Sunday they would set up everything. It was this big arduous task of bringing in all of the equipment, setting up all of the chairs. But as they were talking about it and reminiscing, there was these experiences of, oh, those were the good old days. Do you remember when we, we were in the school gym and there's this excitement and energy? We need to get back to that. And I remember this pastor just going, kind of laughing as he was sharing it with me. And he was saying, because I remember those days and that was not how people felt about it at the time. It was a ton of work. It was frustrating. It was exhausting we have selective memories. As we look back on the past, we see things differently. Maybe it's that vacation where now you, when, if now you look back on it and it was great and fun and a great time as a family or with that group of friends, but in the moment it rained all week and you were stuck inside and it was frustrating and you just couldn't wait to get back home. We have selective memories which should bring us to a place of one within our own life to actually do our best to be thankful and practicing gratitude in the midst of everything. Because many of us, we're going to look back on it and be like, oh, that was awesome. That was great. So why not find that which is awesome and great in that experience right now? But even more so, it should bring to us a degree of skepticism. Now, I want to use that word carefully here, which is not to say we disbelieve everything, but there should be a degree of going, is that fully accurate the way that I am remembering things? Because maybe I'm just remembering things the way that I want to remember them. We all can have selective memories. And the amazing thing about the act of communion, as we gather around, we are reminded of the most terrible, horrible event in human history. That God in human flesh, that we 
nailed to a cross and put to death. There's this passage in Luke chapter 24. I want to read it for you. Uh, And so this is after Christ has resurrected. He was put to death, but he is alive. And so his followers, they are all confused. Most of them have not seen him yet or encountered him yet. The only people who have are the women who went to the tomb and they've seen an empty tomb. And so they are proclaiming that he is alive and all the rest of the disciples are feeling lost because their world has been torn in two and turned completely upside down. Starting at verse 13, now the same day two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, the two being Jesus' disciples. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. And so first, so Jesus is alive, and yet his disciples, they don't realize it's him. They are so caught up in their hurt, in their disappointment, in their dashed hopes, they don't realize that it's Jesus right there in front of them. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these last days? Now, uh, which is essentially, it translates to, Where have you been living? Under a rock? Uh, And Jesus, I love his response. What things? Just so casual. What what things? What are you talking about? what's, What's going on? What was this big thing that everyone's talking about? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. It's for them. They had this agenda, this assumption, this belief about who Jesus was and, and the work that he was going to do but he had been put to death on a cross and they just went, well, there's no way that God is going to liberate Israel now. That that Jesus was clearly not the person through whom he was going to do that because he's dead. And, And messiahs, the successful ones, do not simply die. And what more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, this being Jesus, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if they were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And so we have these disciples, they have this selective memory about the past. 
Yeah, Jesus was the Messiah. Yeah, Jesus was the one who was going to liberate Israel. They, they remember hearing this and, and seeing this in him. But then he's put to death. And all they can think about is their dashed hopes. And yet Jesus is calling them back to remember. And oh, wait a minute, this is about a liberation that, that doesn't come through violence that doesn't come through me picking up a sword and killing all of our enemies. No, this is, this is a redemption and a liberation that comes through my sacrifice, through a body that's going to be broken and blood that's going to be poured out. And as he breaks the bread, suddenly for them, it's a light bulb moment. It's like, oh, that's, what he was trying to tell us from the beginning. And I love the word that they use. It, it talks about them recognizing. It actually, the, the actual Greek is they knew it was him. It's epigenosis kind of knowledge. It's this, uh, is the Greek word is epigenosis, which is this like experiential. It's like, oh, that was him. It is not simply just a, a cognitive knowledge, but it's a whole body response to the presence of Jesus. He is there alive and they realize this and they discover that he is at work and that he is a savior unlike anything they ever expected or anticipated and they discover this they rediscover this as he breaks the bread and they suddenly realize no no the savior that we needed was not one who was going to come with a sword but rather was one who was going to die at the hands of our enemies which is a pretty scandalous message. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it, once again going to 1 Corinthians. He says this, go to the next slide. But we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. He says, I know I got together with the PR group. They did a bunch of sample studies. They got a bunch of people in the room, asked them lots of different questions, try and find out what was gonna be the most popular message. They said, hey, we want a warrior Messiah. Uh, we, want, we want a Christ who's going to come and like has lots of awesome superpowers and is going to wow the people and is going to rule them with an iron fist. And Paul said, no, 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 no we, we didn't care about any of that. We, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks. Go to the next slide. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul says our message, what we have to proclaim is that Christ is crucified. That the Messiah, that the saving one, the, the, the one who has liberated us from sin and evil and death, the one who is victorious, victorious over everything, his victory comes through a body that is broken and through blood that is poured out. That's our message. And as we as a community gather around the table and as we remember, as we do this to remember, we proclaim to the world the saving work of Jesus. And as we proclaim this, as we participate in this, something significant happens. In communion, as we, as we consume, as we ingest and digest 
the, the body and blood of Christ, we are caught up in God's healing and redemptive mission in the world. There's a book called Common Prayer. We have been using it on the mornings here. I love the uh, in our, our morning uh, gather, prayer gatherings, and this is what is written in it. Uh, it says this, If you are what you eat, it's a great expression, if you are what you eat, the Eucharist is indeed the act of uniting yourself with the one who lovingly suffered at the hands of his enemies. Those who ingest and become one with the suffering body of Christ all together become the body of Christ. So as we share this meal together, we are first and foremost reminded of Christ, of his sacrifice, of the body that was broken, of the blood that was poured out. And as we do that, we realize that is our source of life. It is our sustenance. It is what keeps us going. And it propels us out into the world. And that we too can be bodies that are broken and blood poured out for the world. That we don't need to hold on to our lives and guard our lives and secure for ourselves wealth and popularity and the embrace of others. Rather, that as we consume and are empowered by the work, redemptive work of God, that, that our lives can be lives that are given, broken, and poured out for others in sacrificial love. that we can go and we can take on the challenges and the difficulties that come with living as disciples of Jesus, sharing and proclaiming the good news of the kingship of Jesus Christ to all. And we can go in and we can embrace the challenges that come with that. Because in a life given and broken and poured out, we discover we are actually being present with Christ, that he is at work in us and through us. So this morning, my invitation as we gather around, as we share communion together, is to realize that this is something we are invited into to do as remembrance of what Christ has done. And the invitation is to do this, to, to live this out in our lives. And so what I want to invite you to do this morning, if you are having communion by yourself or with a group of people, I invite you first, um, take some time. Let's, we're going to be quiet before God. And then I want to slowly walk us through this exercise of communion. We're going to take our time with it. We're going to enjoy it. But first, let's quiet our hearts before God and thank him for his redemptive work in our lives. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks and he said, this 
is my body given for you. As you hold the bread in your hand, first and foremost, I invite you to reflect and to realize that this is Christ's sacrifice for you. His body was broken for you and for us. And then as we consume it together, we are given life through his sacrifice. In the same way, we can bring our lives to God. And I want you to imagine you are bringing your life to God with, with this bread in your hand. And you can simply say, God, my life is yours. You've claimed it. You have redeemed it through Jesus Christ. My hope is in your resurrection power. And so I give my life to you. Lord God, do with it what you want. I pray that if my life is broken before you, that it would declare and proclaim to the world your resurrection power. And as we bring the bread, we also lift up our church, the body of Christ. God, we as a church, we want to serve you. We want to reflect you to the world. So God, in the ways that you, you seek to break us open as we confront sin, as we confront selfishness, as we confront idolatry in our lives and in our world. God, we bring this to you. We give our church to you. And we pray that your saving power would be proclaimed through our life together. The body of Christ given for you. I invite you, let's take and eat and drink together the body and blood of Christ. Well, as we conclude our time of communion, I want to direct your attention. We have a, just a refrain or a reading that I would love to share with you, it is a combination of, um, of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and just simply the refrain, taste and see that the Lord is good. And uh, I think that is a powerful reminder that as we participate, as we give over our lives to God, that, that through that we are made into new creations, that God does amazing things through us. So please read this with me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. All this is from God 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's conclude with this refrain. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so as we share this meal together, we proclaim the incredible truth that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. Amen.